Thank you for tuning in to my podcast, Enforcing Purpose with Lisa Schwartz. For more information or to keep up on current events and products, please go to my website at www.lisa-schwartz.com. First thing, we've talked a little bit about that, about how joy is a gift that's been given to us from God. It's a part of the DNA of Christ that lives within us. We know it is in our design as children of God to walk in joy. And it's an important part of our makeup. It's within the DNA of Jesus Christ. He is the essence of joy, and he lives and he breathes and he dwells within us. Now, we know that Galatians 5.22 talks about the fruit of the Spirit And one of, I say one of the fruit, it's one fruit, but part of that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-faithfulness, and self-control. And so we want to make sure that we know that joy has been a gift. It is a fruit. Okay, so when I say something is a fruit, we know that there's a root that has to happen before that fruit comes. And we're going to be talking about how do we bring out the fruit of joy in our lives. But the first thing we need to realize, we need to believe and receive is the fact that joy is a gift that has been given to us and we must receive that gift. Now, I had the pleasure this last week of leading someone to the Lord from our community and he was um, an older man and was talking a lot about the information and everything. He was raised up in the church talking about knowing who Jesus was but feeling this disconnect. And so I asked him this question. I said, if you were to die today in heaven and you were to stand before God in heaven and he said, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say to him? And he didn't have an answer. His answer looked something like, well, I mean, I guess maybe I would try and say, I hope I've lived good enough or maybe I've, I may feel like I've done a pretty good job with my family and I've raised pretty good kids. And so his answer was basically based on the amount of works that he had done in his life. And so I backed him up. I said, time out. Let me ask you another question. Are you confident that heaven would be your home? And at the root answer there, he was not confident. And so we talked about, yet he had all this information about Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for him. So I said to him, I had a tissue box on the edge of my um, desk, and I placed it over here, and I said, now, if I had a tissue, I I have this tissue box, but let's pretend like it's a gift, and this gift has your name on it. We'll say this man's name was John, and I said, let's say that this gift has your name on it. It says John, and I have purchased this gift for you, not because you've done anything to earn it, not because you have worked for it, but simply because I want to gift you and I love you. And I place this gift for you. And let's say I even tell you everything about the gift. Let's say it's wrapped up, but I tell you everything that's inside the box. And I say, this is a gift just for you. And you hear about the gift, you learn about what's inside of it, and you decide, ooh, that's everything I've ever wanted. Now, before You get up and you leave my office. What needs to happen for that gift to become yours? And he said, I would have to reach out and take it. I would have to reach out and I would have to receive it. And so I said, would would you say that there's ever been a time in your life, I hear you saying, you know there's a box. You know the box has a tag on it and has your name. I hear you saying you even know everything about the box. But what I don't hear you saying is there's been a time that I've actually reached out and I've received it and made it my own. And so I had the pleasure of leading him to the Lord at that moment. And I would like to propose to you that it's the same thing when we're looking at the gifts of God. 
that we can have a knowledge of all that God has given to us. We can say, this is a gift that God has given to me. It's got my name on it. I know everything about it. I can describe it to you. We can all describe now what joy is, right? We can all define it. We can all tell you what the definition of biblical joy is. But the question is, have you relaxed and received it? I tell people that all the time. Relax and receive. Just relax and receive. We might also say relax and release, right? Because we know it's something, it's a part of who we are. To relax and release it, (coughs) receive it, and allow the Lord to just begin to release his joy. Because it could be super aggravating to try and work up joy in your life. Right? I love one of my favorite scriptures is in 1 John chapter 3 where it says, For he himself is greater than our heart so that our heart will not condemn us. You know, because how do you fix a heart issue? You know, if you're really struggling with joy in your heart, how do you fix that? Well, God says, that's okay, I've got that covered too. See, I myself am greater than your heart so that when your heart is condemning you, if you surrender your heart to me, even that I will fix. There's a relaxing and a receiving of what's true and allowing the Holy Spirit to release that truth in our life. That's not living our life by works. That's living your life by grace. See, a lot of us were saved by grace, but now we try to live by works. I'm going to say that again. A lot of us were saved by grace, but now we're trying to live by works. But walking with Christ says, You've been saved by grace, and now you get to live by grace. And so it's not something that we have to muster up. We don't have to try and pretend, act like we all know what joy looks like. We can all act joyful when we have to, right? Sometimes we've been on our way to church, and we're having a really rotten morning. We've left the diaper bag on the top of our car. We've left our cell phone at home. You and your spouse have fought the whole way to church. And then you get to church, and what do you do? You know exactly how to appear and to act joyful. That's not the kind of joy we're talking about. We're talking about a joy that supernaturally explodes up out of who you are, even when you don't want it to. Have you ever been around somebody that you don't necessarily enjoy a whole lot, you don't really like them, but you just can't help still but be joyful and loving with them? That's the spirit of the living God in you superseding your flesh and how you feel. God's like, that's nice. I see how you feel and I see what you think, but this is about me and how, what I think and how I feel about this person. When you learn to allow yourself to be a vessel of the living God and the spirit of God, he will supersede how you think, how you feel, and what you want. We call that your thinker, your feeler, and your picker, right? Your, your mind, your will, and your emotion. And God himself also has a mind, a will, and emotion. He is a thinker, a feeler, and a picker. And he is constantly trying to yank your thinker, feeler, and picker in line with his thinker, feeler, and picker. And so that's what this is about when we're talking about joy isn't something that we have to work for, but rather it's something that we simply step into and release. We surrender our depressed heart to the Lord. You know, a lot of us have become very comfortable in our depression and our despair. That has become our comfort zone, and we love to wallow in our misery. There's a reason why there's a saying that says, misery loves company, because we love to commiserate with one another, right? We find find a, a common place in our misery instead of finding a common place in our joy. But the reality is, We all go through seasons where we struggle with joy. Let's be honest. We all go through seasons where we struggle with joy. I want to read to you Psalm 42. 
And I want you to listen to David in the battle that he has with his soul and the desperation that he has within him. It starts by saying, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. Now remember, we're talking about the difference between your spirit and your soul. My spirit doesn't long for anything. My spirit is perfected in Christ. My soul, my thinker, my feeler, my picker, my personality, the core of who I am, struggles to get in line. That's what Paul, what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7 when he says, everything that I want to be doing, this I don't do, and everything I don't want to be doing, I keep on doing. Oh, who can rescue me from this, from this body of mine, right? Who can rescue me? And he's talking about the battle that he has between what he really wants. That's why Jesus says to Peter after he says, even unto the death, I will follow you. And he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's basically showing, dividing the spirit from the soul and saying there's a desire of the spirit and then there's a desire of the soul. And a lot of our life is constantly sanctifying the soul so that it looks like, acts like, feels like, lines up with the spirit of the living God. And it becomes a part of who we are as well. And so David is wrestling here. And he goes on, I'm going to jump down to verse 5 where he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? He's stepping out of his soul realm, coming into the spirit. He's having self-talk. He's talking to himself. He's saying, what's up with you, soul? Why are you so downcast? Now, I give people assignments all the time where I want them to look into the mirror and I want them to speak to themselves. Lisa, in the name of Jesus, you are good enough. Every day, saying it. And people find that weird, yet we don't think it's weird that we negatively say the opposite things to ourselves all day long. God, I was so stupid. Why could I do such a stupid thing? Right? And these are the kinds of, conver we're constantly having conversation with ourselves in our head. Are we not? Am I the only one who's... Okay, I know David did because he's, he's in the Psalms having a conversation with himself. And so the question is, are you intentionally conversating with yourself? Are you intentionally thinking according to the way God thinks about who you are? And so David recognizes that there's something not right within me. There's something that's not lined up. And so he says, why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Then look at what he says. Hope in God. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the root of your joy being your hope. The hope that we have in what? In God. He's saying, listen, stop hoping in the things of this world. Stop hoping in the things that are going to cause a disquietness within our soul and place your hope in God. And he's having this conversation with himself. He didn't go to somebody else who's speaking the truth into him. He is so learned in the word and so understanding of the character of God and knows the right that he has to speak to his soul and say, you've got a problem and you've got to get in line because we are not in agreement right now. This is what it means to be disquieted in our soul. Hope in God. And then he says this, for I shall, everybody say, I shall. I Not I might, I shall, yet praise him. Look at the decision he's making. This is this entire message in a nutshell, in one verse. Yet I'm going to go on because it continues to affirm the message of this weekend. 
for the help of his countenance. And so he's saying, remember who God is. He's helped you time and time and again. And then he says, oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will. Everybody say with me, I will. These are those decorative statements that we have got to step into and not living our life so wishy-washy. When I give somebody an assignment and I say, do you think that you might, well, I think I could try that. No. Do or do not. Do or don't, but don't try not. Isn't that what Yoda says? Do or don't, but try not. Something to that effect. So I tell them, like, don't try. Either decide you're going to do it or you don't. Because the scripture says if you make a vow, you better be be intentional to fulfill it. Otherwise, it's better for you not to make a vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. That's what it tells me in Ecclesiastes. And so there's, there's this declaration that he's making over and over again. Therefore, I will remember you. And he talks about the remembrances. In verse 7, he says, Deep calls into the deep at the noise of your waterfalls. Your waves and your billows have gone over me. The Lord will, everybody say the Lord will. The Lord, the Lord will. Remember now, who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. He's reminding himself of the character of God. He's not saying, it's going to be okay. Your circumstances are going to be fine. It's going to be fine. I'm going to get a check in the mail tomorrow. He is not encouraging himself with his circumstances. He's encouraging himself with the character of God. He is saying, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. What is his hope? The loving kindness of the Lord. Are we confident in the loving kindness of the Lord? Is that a hope that's good enough for us that we can rejoice and sing? Is that a, a hope that is good enough that our soul will be lifted up? He goes on and he says, The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me. Now he's talking about the act of praise, the act of worship, the act of engaging in the songs of the Lord. A prayer to the God of my life. I will, everybody say, I will. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? He's going to go before the Lord and he's going to bring his complaints. He's going to reason with the Lord. It's okay. You can be honest with God and how you're feeling. He already knows how you're feeling. So that's okay. You can be honest with him. And so he goes on and he says, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you so down? So watch how he's going back and forth. He's like, now he's in his flesh going, ooh, but I still have these enemies that I have to deal with. And then he steps back into the spirit and goes, listen, soul, you and I have got to come in line with each other. Why are you so downcast, oh, my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Second time, he says to his soul, hope in God. He's having a battle within himself. It's not like he was like, hoping God, that didn't work. I tried it. I tried it. Oh, I already tried that. It didn't work. Don't try it. Do it. Don't try it. Do it. And keep doing it until you get your breakthrough. Keep doing it until you get your breakthrough. Sing your way into a breakthrough. Dance your way into a breakthrough. Rejoice your way into a breakthrough. Pray your way into a breakthrough. But keep doing it until you cross the enemy lines and you take what's rightfully yours. That's what we're talking about here. You see that he says hope in God. Then he has this battle. Then he goes back and forth. He's literally talking himself into truth. Are you hearing what I'm saying? He's saying hope in God. For I shall, everybody say I shall. 
I shall yet praise him. The help of my what? Of my countenance. Some of us, our countenance needs a little help. And he's saying, he is the help of my countenance and my God. My God. And what are we talking about? He's talking about what's his. He's not just a God. He's not just a God that I know about. He is my God. He's not like my friend's father. He's my father. He's not just like my neighbor's daddy. He's my daddy. He's not just like my friend's lover. He's my lover. He's mine. He's mine. Why? Because I picked him up off the table and I took him for myself. He's mine and I know that and I'm confident. And I have allowed him to be the leader and the Lord of my life. And when things in my heart and my mind aren't lining up with what I know he has told me, I'm going to battle for what's rightfully mine. And this is what we have got to train ourselves in this. All y'all are sitting here looking at me, you're like, God, I'm really super inspired. And you can be inspired all night long. You can even feel inspired tomorrow. But if on Monday you don't do what I'm telling you to do, it won't make a lick of difference. It will not change your life. It will not change you. And, and that's, I, I shared that with you on Friday night. That was one of the reasons why we started the whole ministry because I felt like I was at this place where I was constantly inspiring people, telling them, giving them information. But what does it look like on Monday to walk with people through? Walking that out and saying, okay, now we get to put this into action. I was having a conversation with Kyla last night, and she's, one of the things that I love about being in the ministry now is all the things you've been teaching me, all the wisdom, all the information, all the knowledge, all the truths, all the biblical scriptures that I know, I see it in action every day in the way that we deal with the residents, in the way that we have to pull on the, on the hem of the Lord and suck from his love to love the unlovable, to pull from his grace to show grace to those we don't want to show grace to. Because if all I've done is taught her all these years and she showed up work and didn't see me actually practicing that and see that in action, all that information would mean nothing. There would be no integrity in there and there would be no genuineness in that. And so if all we ever have is information and we live our life frustrated having information but not knowing how to play it out, the step away from there is your step. It is your step. It's putting it into action. Those are what we call spirit chases, right? Okay, so we've got to choose joy. We talked a little bit about how joy is a choice. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. But believe it or not, you get to. Everybody say, I get to. I get to choose joy. This is exciting. We get to choose joy. I often tell my clients that the difference between knowledge and reality is your action. What are you going to choose? I will sit there and listen to them for 20 minutes, complaining about this, complaining about that. And that's important. That's part of what, I'm, what I do as a counselor. But at the end of their conversation, I will say, where do you choose to settle? What do you choose to settle? Because the reality is, we're going to have these battles. We're going to struggle with these things. And choosing joy doesn't mean I'm going to ignore that I have challenges in my emotions. It means I understand that even though I can identify what I'm challenged with and I can identify the emotions that I'm challenged by, I know that I have the authority and the wherewithal to decide, but this is where I'm going to choose to settle. That's the but God. But God. And people come into my office all the time. I am guilty of it, of saying, but this, but that, but this, but that. All of these buts as to why we are not to excuse us from coming into the fullness of the Lord. And there's a difference between explaining why I'm challenged and giving an excuse for being challenged. You follow the difference? We should be bothered when our spirit 
is downcast within us. Our spirits should be vexed when we are not joyful. Many of us don't even recognize a lack of joy. That's what it's saying in verse 7 when it says, Deep calls into the deep at the noise of your, capital Y, God's waterfalls. Meaning, when we, are, when we are seeking after God somewhere deep within us, His Spirit becomes very noisy. That's why we become disquieted or discontent within us. He becomes very noisy when we have not aligned ourselves with the character of Christ. Now, you have two choices at that point. You can choose to listen, pay attention, and respond, or you can choose to ignore it. It's like the uh, beeping fire alarm. You have two choices at that point. You You can respond to the sound, and you can know that it's best for me to change this battery because that is, letting, that is letting me know of something greater, right? Or I can choose to ignore it. And if you choose to ignore it, guess what will happen after a while? You will no longer hear it. You will become so used to it that you will, it will no longer bother you. And so one of the things that I ask the Lord to do is to please bother me. Bother me when I have a critical spirit. Bother me when I have a judgmental thought. Bother me when I'm not responding in the fullness. I want to be bothered by that. I am giving you permission to bother me. I want to be vexed. I would love to lose sleep. If I'm missing out on your character, God, keep me up. Make me restless. I want to be disquieted. I want to hear the roaring of your billows. Your deep speaking to the depths of me. That's what he's talking about here. Disquieted within me. That's what we call that holy discontent where there's something not right within me. And we pay attention to it and we go back to the Lord and we allow him to mold us, to to remake us, to discipline us. But many of us are relying on our breakthrough to bring us joy. Remember, choosing joy is the breakthrough. Choosing joy is the breakthrough. We must recognize the power of choice. God has given to you and you have to choose it. In Deuteronomy it says, this day, everybody say this day, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you and I, you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. And he says this, now choose life so that you and your children may live. Now listen, these choices that we are making don't just affect our lives. We're setting a precedence for generations to come. If you had a cranky mother... Chances are you struggle with being cranky. If you had a joy-filled mother who genuinely knew the joy of the Lord, chances are there's more of a natural bend in you than somebody who didn't have that to be joyful. If you had a father that struggled with anger, chances are there's a, a bend in you in the natural to struggle with anger because that's what was modeled for you your whole life. So we believe in, 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 general, in generational things. And so we have to understand that our power to choose is not just shifting our life, but it's shifting generations to come. That you have the power to wash joy into the future, into your heritage. Come on now, that's powerful. This isn't just about you. This is about washing the joy of the Lord into the kingdom as it multiplies forward. That we would be a joy-filled kingdom. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is our what? It's our strength. 
And we are a people of power and of strength because we are God's children. We are God's children. Now listen, this this passage was being given before they were heading into the promised land in Joshua, where they would be positioned between two mountains, and the, the land, the promised land, was the valley between two mountains. And the one, mountains, the one mountain represented blessing, the other mountain bl- represented curses. So what, what Moses was saying is, on a daily basis, while you are in the promised land, you will be prophetically positioned where every day you can say, I can look at blessing or I can look at curses. And every day I will get to, everybody say, I get to. I will get to choose. I will get to choose. Will I choose life or will I choose death? Will I choose joy or will I choose depression? You follow? And he positioned them where every day there was that reminder of the choice that we have. And remember, it's not based on our circumstance. In Habakkuk it says, though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on your vines, though the olive crop fails, y'all, they're not having a good season. This is not a good day. And the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will, everybody say I will, will. rejoice in the Lord. I will, everybody say I will, will. be joyful in God my Savior. I didn't write this. God wrote this. Because we get to say yet, but God, yet I will, yet I will. I love uh, the story of, uh, it it cracks me up, in Acts, I don't even know what chapter it is, but it's when Paul and he has the shipwreck, right? So he's traveling, wherever he is he's traveling, and he has the shipwreck, and he crashes on the island of, thank you, uh, Malta. He, He crashes on the island of Malta, and he gets there, and then all these people, and then remember he gets, and then he, he's starting this fire, and he gets bit by this, y'all, he's not having a good day. This is, this is not a good day. I'm like, think about it. That's like some really rotten circumstances. And a lot of us would be like, in fact, I had a, um, I had a, one of my residents that was like, I don't understand. I just feel like, you know, all these bad circumstances are happening, and I just keep having all these bad circumstances. And why is, why is the devil just doing all this to me? And I said, sweetheart, there's a difference between reaping consequences of choices that you've made and the devil attacking you. So let's, let's review the last six months and some of the choices that you've made. Because remember, we're going to reap fruit in a different season in which we sow. So right now, you're right, the last two or three weeks, you've been really killing it in your program. But six months ago, you weren't. And some of these consequences, the fruit is, is, being, birth, is, being, is being birthed in a different season in which, you, in which you sowed. So let's just back it up for a minute and let's discuss. Because when I say, oh, I'm going to attack my thing, then I'm saying I'm just a victim. But when I back up and I say, actually, I'm reaping, reaping consequences. So I wasn't trying to condemn her. I was trying to empower her and remind her of the authority that she has over her own choices. And whether we like it or not, we're going to bear fruit. Every choice that we make is either a liability or an asset to who you are becoming in Christ. Every choice that you make. And so we either sow, that's why it says, you sow to the, if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap death. But if you sow to the spirit, you'll reap life. The choice that we have. But this requires for us to choose joy, 
for us to say, yet I will praise God. In the midst of when my fig tree is not bearing any buds, and my no, there's no grapes on my vine, and there's no olive, my olive crop is failing, and there's no food in my field. That's a depressing season. But he says, yet I will praise God. But in order to do this, this requires not just knowing that the fruit is yours, that it's been a gift that you can just step into, but it also requires some tenacity, some stubbornness. You've got to come to a place where you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. Some of us work harder at staying in our depression than we do at trying to get out of it. Can I just say that? Because it's a lot of mental and emotional energy to be angry at somebody. It's a lot of mental and emotional energy to hold on to unforgiveness. It's a lot of mental and emotional energy to be weary, faint-hearted, to settle in depression. Because your mind is in a constant state of hustle. And I, I I have really felt like the Lord over the last year has said, I don't want you to just take authority over circumstances and actions. I want you to really take authority over your emotional and mental energy. Because that exhausts me more than playing with my children. And my children are teenagers, so. (laughs) But mental and emotional energy, I don't care to discuss. And these guys will hear me say sometimes, they'll say, hey, we have this or this resident feels this way. And we, we work with residents, so you understand we deal with a lot of drama, right? Well, she says this and she thinks that. And, I'm, and I will literally, and you've heard me say this, I will literally say, I'm not spending one minute of this meeting discussing how they feel about our program. If they don't like it, they can leave. And it's not that I don't care. It's that they're fussy and dramatic. And do you see what I'm saying? And the next week, they're going to feel totally the opposite. We know this. They've been living with us for seven months. They're fickle. They don't know what they feel. They don't know how they think. They're having a bad day, and they have nobody else to blame but us. End of subject. I'm not, we're, we're not going to have this conversation. I'm not sucking up any of our mental and emotional energy talking about it. How many of you spend a lot of time strategizing what might happen? How are we going to respond? Well, what if he responds like this? Then what should we do? This just doesn't make any sense to me. I'm like, I'm, we're, we're going to spend here, spend t- 15, 20, 30 minutes talking about how we're going to respond in case something might happen. That doesn't make any sense to me. That's a total waste of mental and emotional energy. And I'm not talking about being prepared. I'm talking about operating in fear or trying to control things that haven't even come into the scene yet. That's a lot of mental and emotional energy. And so... We've got to come to a place where we're sick and tired of spending all that time arguing in our mind, managing our emotions. You understand that when Jesus came, he didn't say, I came to help you manage your emotions, or I came to help you manage life. He said, no, I came to be your deliverer. And there's a difference between being delivered from anger and learning how to manage my anger. Right? Because, and, and we talk about this a lot as counselors, is a lot of times we go to these anger management classes. I'm not interested in managing my anger. I'm interested in being delivered from it. I'm interested in walking in, in grace and in peace and not having anger. And I'm not saying we never feel angry, but I don't want to ha- learn how to manage my anger issues. I don't want to have an anger issue. You want to know why? Because Jesus didn't have an anger issue. You nailed it when you said, we're looking like Jesus. Jesus didn't have to manage his anger. 
He did, and I'm not saying he never felt, because we know he felt righteous anger. But he didn't, he didn't live his life managing, wasting mental and emotional energy, managing his emotions. So how do we cultivate joy? How do we, so when, you, know, you know what I mean when I say cultivate something? Those of you who are gardeners, when we cultivate something, we're encouraging growth, right? We're, we're, we're fertilizing it, and we're nourishing it, and we're encouraging it to grow. So how do we cultivate joy in our life? By choosing joy on a daily basis, you fertilize the seed of God that's already within you. Now, remember, we talked about the DNA of Jesus' seed being within you, and with that comes joy. So we fertilize that every time we choose joy. Now, the first time you actually catch yourself and go, ooh, I have a choice here. This is what Lisa was talking about last weekend. I can choose how I want to respond. I, my kids often say, I have an 11-year-old who's like, but, but I, they made me. They made me mad. Nobody can make you mad. You choose it or you don't. Do you see what I'm saying? So, we, so the minute you catch that thought when you're beginning to say, and you go, oh, now I have a choice. And I'm going to tell you, you're sitting here right now, and it all sounds like you're going to be like, oh, yeah, that'll be so easy, and I'll just choose joy. If you're as stubborn as I am, you will not just choose joy. You will wrestle inside your mind. But if you're also struggling with hopelessness and faint-heartedness and weariness, it's not that easy either. And that's why we have to be like David, with hope in God, hope in God, hope in God, hope in God. You've got to hope in God. Yet I will praise him. Hope in God, I'm going to praise him. Hope in God, I'm going to praise him. You've got to continue, 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 and continue. Because to the same degree that you've been speaking those negative thoughts to your mind, however many years old you are, think about how much more forceful you've got to come at it to transform the mind. That's why the scripture says, be ye not conformed to the pattern of this world any longer. Well, we're not just talking about the pattern of the world. We're talking about the pattern we have become and we have set in our own mind. We have patterns of thinking. You understand that? We have developed ruts in our mind. It all takes place in the basal ganglia where your habits are formed. Do you know where your habits are formed? When you're operating in a habit, when you're operating in a habit, there's little to no brain activity. It requires no brain activity, right? It's because we're doing it habitually. How many of you have to think about how to start your car and get to one place or not? You almost don't have to think about it because you're doing it habitually. And it requires no brain activity. Now, I'm telling you that to tell you that your brain loves habits because it's lazy. And for us to change a habit, it requires work, and the brain doesn't like it. It hurts the brain, right? So for us to intentionally choose to change a habitual thought, it requires work from the brain. Okay, I'm giving you my brain science. I told you guys I have a <laughs> certification in brain health coaching. So that's I'm telling you what's happening in the brain and why your brain will resist this. And that's why you've got to be tenacious. You have to decide in advance. Lack of joy is not an option for me. I can't afford it. I can't afford one day separated from God. I can't afford one day because I don't want to get to, I don't want to, get to the end of my life someday and look back and say there were too many days I wasted choosing to settle in something less than best. You've got to decide that in advance. So we, how do we do that? We practice. So here are, here are ways you can cultivate joy in your life. Practicing gratitude. That's biblical. 
you know, if we would just do what the Bible says, y'all wouldn't need me. I would, I would go out of business. I would not have any clients. I wouldn't have any speaking because y'all would just be, be empowered by the word of God. And I, I'm speaking to myself, right? So that is not to condemn you. That is to empower you to say, ooh, that's a great thought, Lisa. Maybe we should just start doing, and I'm not talking about reading scripture. I'm saying doing what it says. So when we read in 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always. End of com- conference. <laughs> <laughs> Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, meaning through Christ Jesus, he's empowered you to do his will. You understand that when we say, I just can't, I just can't, I just can't. you don't understand, you just don't understand, I just can't. No, you can. Why? Because God says you can. And Christ Jesus in you empowers you. God will not call you to do something that he has not empowered you to do. That is counterintuitive to who he is. There is always enough energy to fulfill the will of God. There's always enough resources to do the will of God. There's always enough time to do the will of God. So if you're running out of energy, resources, and time, you're probably either making excuses or you're out of the will of God. That's a pretty good, easy standard, right? Somebody write that down so I can remember that for myself. But I'm saying the scripture says, rejoice always. Can pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Again, a choice that we have to choose to engage in. You have to choose to practice gratitude and be thankful. And we're all sitting in here going, oh, yeah. But how many of us are doing it? I love that you were like, I was, I I said to Shirley, I was like, do people really actually like, I'm sitting there thinking, I'm challenged by this, like, do we actually record like all the ways we've seen the goodness of the Lord? And then I'm thinking in my head, what if I were to actually do that just even for a week of time? And so I'm feeling challenged by that because I'm hearing something that I think is good and is excellent. And I'm asking myself, why am I not doing it? And who would I be if I did it? How would that change my life? Right? Instead of going, oh, I wish I... I was telling Jackie earlier, I love when um, Joyce Meyer says, don't be jealous of me for having what you don't have when you're not willing to do what I've done to get it. Do you want me to say that again? Okay. Don't be jealous of me for having what you don't have when you haven't been willing to do what I've done to get it. And a lot of us look and we covet other people's lives and we want those kinds of lives and instead of going to them and saying, tell me all you, you want to know how I can tell somebody who's serious in life coaching and being discipled? When they say, can I meet with you? I want to learn from you. I want to hear from you. I want to pick your brain, right? If I sit down with them and they bring a piece of paper and a pen, I know they're serious. That one single act changes everything for me. If they show up and they just sit there and talk to me, chances are I will never meet with you again. I will give you 30 minutes of my time. And when you have done that, you call me back and I will consider whether we will meet you again. And 90 to 90, Liz can attest to this because she schedules my appointments. 90 to 95% of people never call me back. You know why? Because they never do what I tell them to do. I'm talking about people who want to start ministries or who want to change their parenting style or who want to work on their, on their marriages. And they come to me, and I've had to set boundaries in my schedule. I'm not going to just keep, me, keep meeting with somebody and throwing my seed on fallow soil. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a responsibility that the seed carrier has 
to say, mm, this is the seed of the Lord, and I'm not throwing my pearls before swine. And so there are checkpoints that I have for people to say, is this person serious? Did they show up with a piece of paper and a pen? They're taking notes, and I tell them, once you have completed, do you understand your action items? Do these sound doable to you? Once you have completed those action items and you are ready to go to the next step, you call me. 90 to 95% never call me back. And when I bump into them, I will, they'll say, well, just, I couldn't seem to get, oh, you know, that dream. And I'll say, well, did you ever do call that person that I told you to call? Well, no, I couldn't because blah, blah, blah. And they'll have all kinds of reasons. And so they will never see their dreams come to pass, which is very, very sad. In case you haven't figured it out, one of my hot top strengths is a maximizer. I like to see people maximize their life, right? So I like to see that, and I'm very, very saddened when I see and I hear people's dreams. People come to me all the time with the most incredible visions. Man, those two girls in Cincinnati, they were talking about the party in the box. I was like, oh, man, let's do this. I'll totally invest in this. You guys need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. It's three years later, they've never done a thing. I'm about to steal their idea. <laughs> it was fantastic. I have lots of great ideas that come to me out because I do a lot of business consulting and helping people get started in our business. How do we form an LLC? How do I write my bylaws? How do I make my mission statement? How do I develop my website? But if you don't do what I tell you to do, I'm not going to do it for you. I'm not building your website for you. It's not my vision. It's yours. And it's the same way when we come before God and we're throwing out to him and he says, here are the things I want you to do. I want you to rejoice always. I want you to pray continually, and I want you to give thanks in all circumstances. And when you've done that, then you come back to me, and I'll release the joy of the Lord. Come on. All right, so we're sitting here, we're talking about practicing gratitude. Number two, cultivating his joy, practice his presence. Practicing the presence of the Lord. I talked earlier about the fruit. The fruit comes from the, set, from the root, Right? The Bible says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If, if you remain in me, what does it mean to remain? That Greek word means to abide, to tarry, to never leave. Okay, so some of us are like, now I'm with God, now I'm not. Now I'm with God, now I'm, with, now I'm having my quiet time, now I'm making supper. <laughs> and, and we kind of play hokey pokey with the presence of God. How do we say, okay, we know that the Lord says, I never leave you, I never forsake you. How about we say back, God, and I'm never going to leave you, and I'm never going to forsake you. And everything I do, see, we compartmentalize our relationship with the Lord. This is my quiet time. We, your quiet time should never end. I said earlier, uh, some of the songs that you guys have heard this, this weekend, The Wick, uh, and of course, Good Good Father, everybody knows that, is by a group called House Fires, and I've seen them live before. I think you were at that concert that we went to, and he was sitting there, and he was saturated with the presence of the Lord, and he said, if we really understand God, and we understand that we are first and foremost spirit beings, having a human experience, and there is no such thing as a spiritual moment. Our life is a spiritual moment. And we have natural experiences. And so how do we shift it to where it's like, oh, I had a spiritual moment with the Lord today. No, I get to the end of my day and I'm like, you know, there was a natural moment that I helped, that I, that I had, that I kind of stepped outside the spirit, but man, it didn't feel good. It vexed me and I immediately jumped right back into the spirit. This is our God ability. Guys, this is our kingdom ability. This is our God ability. The thing is, if that doesn't excite you, if we think about our God ability, potential, 
our God ability and the fact that we are spirit beings and it is possible for us to be so saturated in the spirit of the Lord that the minute I sort of come into myself (laughs) and come out of the spirit, it feels weird. I tell people it should be more difficult for us to disobey than it is for us to obey. It should be hard. And, And us as grown adults, we've come to a place where it's hard to lie. Do you ever try to like, uh, my eyebrow starts to twitch. I have like this automatic, it's like everybody knows, and I'm just trying to keep your birthday gift from you, and I just, I'm like eyebrows twitching. Who is a God of truth, who is honest, who is transparent, and reveals all things to us by the Spirit. And so for me to operate not like that is counterintuitive to who I am in Christ. But we've, and that's how our life should be. And we should be that way with joy. We should be like, man, something's not right. My soul is disquieted within me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remain in me and I in you, you will, everybody say, you will. (laughs) Everybody say, I will. I will bear much fruit. Everybody say, I will bear much fruit. I will bear much fruit. A little bit? Much. Okay, what is the much fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So when you're like, ooh, I don't have patience for this person, you can be sure that somewhere from the root to the fruit, there's a breakdown. Because if your root, come on, if your root is saturated In the goodness of of God, the fruit's just going to come. It's just going to happen. So somewhere from the root to the fruit, you've been disconnected. And so if we're not bearing not just the fruit of the character and the nature of Christ, if we're not bearing much fruit, from the root to the fruit, there's a breakdown. You follow? Somewhere I have disconnected, I have unplugged, I have come out of the abide of Christ. I am no longer remaining and tearing. And good news, we can fix that. All we have to do is plug right back in. And immediately, God supernaturally, the minute we tap into the root, the fruit will come. You follow? And that's what this passage is talking about. Remain in me. My words remain in you. He goes on and on and on and talks about this divine holy partner in which we live. We, I like to call it hanging with God, right? Because the fruit's just hanging on the vine. We're just hanging with God. That's what we do. We commune with him. That's what Adam and Eve did before the fall. They communed with the Lord. What did they talk about? They weren't begging about their problems. They weren't whining about their pain. They weren't talking about their lack in their budget because they were living in the perfection, the perfectly you of the spirit, where all they did was commune with the Lord and just rejoice and glory in his presence and the love that he had for them and live a life saturated in his presence. They were in the sweet abode of God. That's where they remained. And I've often wondered to myself, gosh, what if our prayers were from that position? And they weren't from the position of a pauper where I feel like I have to beg for things that God gave me on the cross. I'm going to say that again. 
What if I came to God knowing my position as co-heir with Christ, knowing the right that I have, and I didn't have to beg like a pauper for what has rightly become mine through the cross? But I knew, like Adam and Eve, just communed with the Lord without any intimidation, without any fear, they abode with God. And they didn't pray in desperation, God, please, will you fix my circumstance? Because all was well with their soul. All was well with them. And that's what we're talking about, practicing that place, practicing the presence of God. Don't wait till you're in the middle of your depression. Don't wait till you're in the middle of your chaos. Don't wait till you're in the middle of stress. That's why the scripture says, put the armor of God on before you enter into battle so that when you do, you will stand. We've got to put it on because when you're in battle, you can't be like, oh my gosh, where's my armor? And that's how we live our life. We live our life out of reaction and defense. And God says, I put you in the offense. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, you're no longer on the defensive side. You're on the offensive side. And that's what it means to practice the presence of the Lord beforehand. To practice it. So I've talked about cultivating your joy. We're going to practice gratitude. We're going to practice his presence. Now I want to tell you something a little bit different. And this is going to be my life coaching you in, in, in this room. I want you to practice his plans. Practice your dreams. Practice your visions. Why? Because the scripture says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They are plans to prosper you, plans not to harm you, but to give you what? A hope and a future. It's a promise that we can stand on. And we need to practice our dreams and our visions. Remember, joy is an emotion evoked by the prospect of possessing something that one desires. What are the desires of your heart? What are the deepest desires of your heart? The scripture says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will grant you the desire of your heart. When we learn to practice, delight ourselves in the presence of the Lord, desires of our heart will just begin to come to pass. But a lot of us don't even know what we desire. We don't even know what we want. We don't even have a vision before us. And the scripture says that a people without a vision, they perish. Right? That's not joy. That's not joy. But we can know that the opposite is true as well, that a people with a vision will prosper. Right? That's the whole premise of our entire program. We keep the vision out in front of these ladies and gentlemen. Because the more we can keep their eye on the vision, the more they intrinsically make decisions. Some of the versions say a people without revelation lack restraint. So what that means is they don't have the restraint to make the daily disciplinary decisions in order to get them to where they want to be. Because they don't have a revelation of where they're going. But when we have a clear revelation of where we're going, then suddenly we know our why why am I exercising 20 minutes every day? Because I have a vision of what it looks like for me to be healthy. And I have a picture, and I've written it out, and I know that I want to overcome my blood sugar issues or to come overcome my fatigue. I'm not talking about looking good. I'm talking about health issues. And so when I have that vision in front of me, I've written it down, and I'm remembering it, and I'm practicing who I am 
when I'm there, right? I'm facing it until I become it. When I'm practicing it, suddenly I become very motivated to stick to my 20 minutes a day. You follow? Because we've got to have that vision out in front of us, that revelation. We've got to practice the plans of the Lord. This is a classic dream-building concept. Jesus was a dream-builder. He was a dream-builder. Remember when he said, imagine a world like this. The kingdom of heaven is like. What was he doing? He was stirring up the hearts of the people, their imaginations. He was reaching out, grabbing a hold of their hearts, pulling it through Narnia's door and saying, look at this world. Look at your God ability. Look at your God potential. Look at all that God has in mind for you. He was stirring up the dreams within the people, what was in their heart all along. Because we know that God has set eternity in the heart of every man. That's what it tells me in Ecclesiastes, y'all. I'm not making this stuff up. And so we've got to practice our dreams. Think about them. Write them down. Get pictures of them. You know, the, the, the Bible in John 10.10 10 says the enemy wants, wants to steal your joy. He comes only to steal, kill, and destroy but Jesus, it says that, but I have come that you would have life and you would have it to the full. That you would have it to the fullest. And the enemy, one of the reason, ways he steals that life is by squelching our dreams. Because then we become fruitless kingdoms. We have absolutely no eff- effect or impact. When the Bible's, I'm going I'm I'm to go, um, let me go back over here. Um, so I, I'm... <laughs> But I'm going I'm to go aside for a minute. And I want you, want you to think about the fact that the Bible says that we are to make disciples among the nations. It doesn't say make disciples in the nations. Think about it. It means that we as a kingdom people should be discipling the nations. Meaning we should be giving counsel to people in authority. We should be giving counsel to state representatives. We should be giving counsel to our congressmen. We should be giving counsel to the kings and to the, and to the, and to the queens and to the presidents of our nations. We as a kingdom people are to disciple the nations. That's the authority of the kingdom. This makes so much sense. It should make so much sense to you. I'm praying, Holy Spirit, make it make sense. It should make so much sense to us that we have been given the keys to the kingdom, the keys to the kingdom. And God has put us in a position of authority and he will favor us to where kings and nobles listen to us. Remember it says that the gifts will usher you, will usher you into the places of kings and nobles. What ushered David into the presence of a king? His intimacy with the Lord. Remember how he played his harp? Where did he practice playing his harp? Out in the field? I don't know. Scripture doesn't really say. But we know he was good at it. And with that came a stirring up of the presence of the Lord that silenced the crazy demons that would drive Saul crazy. And it was his own intimacy, his practicing the presence of the Lord, that gift is what ushered him in to have influence over the king. In the Old Testament, there wasn't a king without a prophet. When a king, king Jehoshaphat, he sought the counsel of the prophet Zechariah. Look at it. Read the Old Testament. You never saw a king without a prophet. Why? Because God designed, actually he didn't design, he designed for priests and prophets to actually rule. But 
but the, the people wanted a king such as all the other nations. Remember that in 1 Samuel. But because there's, so God therefore then positioned the prophets that they would counsel the kings and the kings would follow the counsel of the prophet. That's what it means to disciple the nations. We've lost it. Somewhere we've lost it. Somewhere we've lost it. But that's what was happening in the book of Esther when it says that the king's scepter switched from being moved to Haman to Esther. There was a shift that took place where the favor went from the world to God's kingdom. That's what happened in that moment. And I believe that God is calling for that shift to take place again, that we as a kingdom people will be influencing kings and nobles because we are called to make disciples among the nations. Now, that was completely free. You're welcome. <laughs> but I think it was important because that's a part of what the enemy is trying to steal. He is trying to keep us a completely ineffective kingdom so that we have no effect in government, we have no effect in, and we're getting our rears kicked. We're getting our rears kicked. All right, so we have talked about practicing gratitude, practicing his presence, practicing our dreams. And I want to throw this in there, but can I just say that part of cultivating joy is practicing laughter. We have got to practice laughter. Learn to laugh. Learn to laugh. Learning to laugh. Laughing is a gift from the Lord. You know, in Job it says, He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. He fills our mouth with laughter. Do you know that it says that a happy heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. The Bible says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Right? But laughter brings healing to our body, and it fills us with life. It fills us with unction. And so if you're feeling weary, if you're feeling faint-hearted, then perhaps you need to turn on. And I do this a lot. Okay, so let me give you some brain science again. When you laugh, you release something called serotonin in the brain. Now, you have this fun little mohawk section that goes right through the center of your brain right here that's called the cingulate gyrus, and we call it the brain's gear shifter. It's what helps me shift from one gear to another, so I can shift from one thought to another. Now, how many of us in this room get stuck in a loop, <laughs> and we can't seem to shift? Your brain needs some serotonin, because lack of serotonin will cause your brain, so serotonin calms that down. Your, that part of your brain is what we call it gets hot. So if we were to do a brain scan, we would be able to see a lot of that. That would be a hot section of your brain. And serotonin would immediately calm that down. Now, there are several ways to release serotonin in your body. One of the other ways is by exercise. It releases, we all know that, right? It releases serotonin. That's why it de-stresses us. I'm giving you the brain science behind what's de-stressing us. Not to mention, so, I mean, science is catching up with the Bible. This is all in the Bible, right? So it releases, uh, it releases serotonin when we exercise. The other thing that releases serotonin is thought, and this is scientific. Now, I'm telling you, I took a science class, is thoughts of gratitude and thankfulness releases serotonin in the brain. Ah. There's a reason. See, God knows how we function. He knows he designed the brain. So he's like, here's how you keep your brain healthy, guys. Rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, right? So that's another way you can release serotonin in the brain. Another way you release serotonin in the brain is by laughter. 
So a lot of times, if I have people who struggle with a lot of anxiety, anxiety is usually because you have a really hot cingulate gyrus, right? Because when we have anxiety, we're stuck in a loop because we're thinking about worry. We're worrying. We're, we're meditating on a problem over and over and over again. And so I will have them practice laughter. And so I might tell them, I want you to find, I want you to watch America's Funniest Home Film videos three times this week. Seriously, I will. Because that laughter healeth the body. It heals the body. And, and, uh, and for free also, a way to release serotonin is by eating some carbs. Some of us need to eat a little more carbs. Um, but carbs actually release the serotonin as well. Yeah, you didn't know that. Protein releases dopamine, which is good for your prefrontal lobe, so it helps you focus better. Serotonin, or the car which comes from your carbs. That's your eating, if anybody's an eating person, dietitian. Okay. That, that is exactly why they call it comfort food. And the more serotonin we have, the more we feel good our, about ourselves. And then we start to feel so good that we make sloppy decisions. Because the more serotonin and the more our cingulate gyrus gets activated, the lower our prefrontal lobe, which is your executive control. That's why they give you tortilla chips. Because you're releasing serotonin and you eat more. The more chips you eat, the more likely you are to overeat. Or bread. They're giving you carbs. They're actually playing on, they're playing on your brain function. Isn't that fascinating? They're tricking you into eating more. <laughs> All right. So we need to learn to laugh. And finally, we've got to persevere in our joy. I want to talk to you about holding fast to your faith and not losing hope. You must reject unbelief and hold fast, fast to your faith. It is one thing to have joy. It's another thing to persevere in your joy. You've got to decide, I'm going to persevere in our joy. We've got to be able to persevere in our faith and in our joy. The Bible says, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall, everybody say, we shall, we shall, we shall reap if we do not, what, lose heart. Remember, we lose heart when we lose our hope. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when it, a desire comes, it's like a tree of life. Right? So there's that balance there of where are we placing our hope? Because when we find ourselves weary and faint-hearted, you can be sure, you can be sure, and you're losing your perseverance and joy, you can be sure it's because your hope has been deferred. It's not on the right thing. It's been deferred. It's been put off. And most of the time, it's because you don't have it in the right place. You're not hoping in God. So in closing, I want to close with this passage. I want to close with this passage. In John 16, where Jesus is foretelling his death, and to his disciples, he says this, Most assuredly, I say to you that you will, we will weep and you will lament. Morning will come. You will go through a season of sorrow. But the world will, re but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish. For the joy of that human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. Everybody say, my heart will rejoice. And listen to this, and it sa he says then, and your joy no one will take from you. Your joy no one will take from you. And what is Jesus doing here? He's saying, listen, you're about to go through a really hard circumstance. But there's a hope that you have 
that there's a joy that is coming because though weeping remain for a night, joy always comes in the morning. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that your word says that in you we have peace. And though in this world we will have great tribulation, we can be a people of good cheer because you have overcome the world, because your light pierces through the darkness, because your joy supersedes any depression. And we thank you, Father, that we don't have a promise of not having troubles, but we have a promise of having joy in the midst of our troubles. So we thank you, Lord, that we're not like the world. Though we live in the world, we are not of the world. And we get to, we get to model a joy that is supernatural, that will draw all those in and they will taste and see that surely the Lord is good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to my podcast, Enforcing Purpose with Lisa Schwartz. For more information or to keep up on current events and products, please go to my website at www.lisa-schwartz.com. 